This is Jewish Board Talk with Cherie Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. According to the Hebrew University of Jerusalem Communications, about half of the Jewish people around the world today identify as Ashkenazi, and the term was initially used to define a distinct cultural group of Jews who settled in the 10th century in the Rhineland in Western Germany. My guest now, Scott Hazelhurst, Professor of Bioinformatics in the School of Electrical, Electric and Information Engineering and Senior Scientist at the Sydney Brenner Institute for Molecular Biosciences, joins me to tell me and us indeed about what DNA says about the history of Ashkenazi Jews. Professor Hazelhurst, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. What does DNA tell us about the past, or can it tell us about the past? So we inherit our DNA from our parents who inherited their DNA from their parents. So it's in a way we can use it as a telescope to look back in the past. And if we collect DNA from a large group of people and we know how they self-identify, we can use that to help understand their histories and uh, how they interacted with other populations, what the size of the population was in the past, and and when certain uh, events happened. How far back can we go with DNA? You can go very far back, so tens of thousands of years. It depends on the quality of the DNA that you've got, how much you've got. And as we go back in time, our precision and the certainty that we have uh, gets gets much weaker. Um, but at least uh, we can say things with reasonable certainty over the last few thousand years um, if we've got the data. So let's go back to 10th century Germany and Ashkenaz and a group of Jews who identified themselves. So the question is where did they come from? Where, How did they suddenly uh, arrive? So we know that after the first of the after the fall of the first temple, there was a very significant Jew- Jewish diaspora. In fact, we know most Jews since that time have lived outside the historical lands of Israel, all the way from Iran in the east and then across the Mediterranean. So, by the start of the first millennium, there were Jewish communities right across the Mediterranean, um, and that's all very well documented in historical time. But then there's this gap: where did the Ashkenazim come from. So until then, there was no concept Ashkenazing, Sephardi. No, mm. they were just Jews. They were Well, we don't really know how people identified, and obviously there were, were differences, and people you know, always uh, like to differentiate themselves, so there wasn't as if there was one universal group, because it's, we're talking about Jews who lived over a period of many thousands of uh, kilometers from the, the western part of the Mediterranean to, to Persia. Um, but the question then is where did this group come from that suddenly arrived? And what's interesting about them is they seem very well established. If you look at the 10th century, they're very well-known writers from that time who still study today. So Rabbi Judah ben Gershom was born in 960 in what is now Western Germany. Rashi was born in 1030 in Eastern France. So they write about lots of things. But they don't write about where they come from. There's no story about you know which where their great grandfather came from. So over the years, there's been a lot of conjecture about where they came from. So some people said they came. There were Sephardi Jews who came over the Pyrenees from Spain, or Charlemagne invited a group of Jews from Baghdad to come um, and 
come to his court. Uh, there's a strong there was quite a strong movement a few years ago that they came from an area called Kazaria, which is north of the Black Sea, on very thin historical evidence. And I think what we know now from the DNA evidence, we don't know everything, but we know that those stories are unlikely to be true. So what does the DNA tell us? So we've got two types of DNA evidence. The one DNA evidence is samples from tens of thousands of volunteers. These are individuals who, with some degree of certainty, can trace their grandparents as Ashkenazi Jews. And then there's a very small amount of ancient DNA, and that's a whole story in itself because uh, um, in order to get it ethically, there, there were really extraordinary events that allowed it to happen. So, so what that tells us... Um, is different things. So first of all, uh, the first studies that were done were to look at the male founders of the Ashkenazim. And that is done by looking at the Y chromosome data. And what that research found was that although there were differences to other Jewish groups, on the whole, the male founders looked very similar to other Jewish groups. And we can trace their ancestry back to the Middle East 2,000 plus years ago. Well, that part of the Middle East that we call the Levant, the western part of the Middle, the Middle East. So there, there's a very clear story of primarily coming from a Middle Eastern origin. The next set of studies that were done were on the mitochondrial DNA, which is inherited from mother to child. So there we can study the female founders. And there, there's a very distinct difference with other Jewish groups, Sephardi, Mizrahi Jews. And we see a very different story. So, in fact, only about 10% of the mothers of the maternal founders of the Ashkenazim can be traced with confidence as being of Middle Eastern in origin. About 80% of those female founders were European and probably uh, Southern Italian is, is our current belief of where they are. And there's a small amount that we, we can't tell. So that's a very different pattern of migration and a very different story to what we see in, say, uh, North Africa or in um, Mesopotamia and uh, Persia. So are we looking at intermarriage then as... Most likely. I most mean, likely. that would be the, the, the most likely explanation would be that you have uh, migration primarily, but not only of men from the Middle East to a diaspora that goes everywhere. There are some women who come along, but at least in the first few generations, there's some fluidity and we're also talking about a time before the rabbinical laws about conversion and intermarriage were fixed in the, the in the, that they were uh, le later on. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. And um, what I'm trying to also understand is you as a st person who studies DNA and genetics, how does the, the how do you marry the genetics with the history? That's really interesting. Now, our primary work that we do at FITS is on, on African popula on po populations. And I think what's you, what, what we find fascinating is that there are always gaps in historical evidence. Uh, whether we're looking at African communities or Jewish communities or European communities, there are these big gaps where we just don't know anything about our origin. And that's very important, I think, for humans. We like to know where we came from. And so this DNA evidence fills in gaps. Sometimes it challenges us, and that can be uh, an issue because people have very strong views that are very important to their self-identity. And then you're telling them, well, you know, maybe it's not quite as simple as, as you believe. So it's something that has to be dealt honestly, but also very sensitively. 
Professor, the gap in Ashkenazi Jewish history, what is that gap and why? So that's the question we don't know. So later uh, the DNA data that we've got now tells us, confirms that, that story that just under half of the ancestry of Ashkenazim is uh, Middle Eastern in origin, about 33% is Southern European in origin, and then the rest is half, half of the rest, a small amount is Western European, and another uh, portion is from Eastern Europe. So why there's this gap is that because the history of the Jewish people in the first millennium of the Common Era was very complex as a result of increasing persecution as Christianity took over the, the Roman Empire, and it was very varied, and many historical records got lost. Um, I'm interested why the people who lived in the 10th century didn't tell us about themselves, but we need to try and understand that gap. Why, why do you think that is the case? Well, if they I, I were would writing... Guess, I, I, mean, would guess, I would guess that they were fairly, a fairly well-established community. At the, my conjecture, purely pure conjecture, is that they were a well-established community, and so that the story of where they came from wasn't interesting. Maybe if you'd looked three or four generations earlier it was a more fluid situation. So there was no need for them to yeah. describe themselves, even in relation to the people yes, around them? Yes. Well, they were talking about, in relation, there were famous disputes between Rashi and, and other rabbis with the Christian leaders at the time, but there were contemporaneous disputes. They weren't historical disputes. So what we get from the DNA evidence now is we get something about, for example, for me it was quite shocking to understand the size of the population. So we can see from the DNA evidence there was a fairly large community. And then about 1,200 years ago, there was a, a dramatic decline in the size of the population to probably only a few thousand in size, which is quite remarkable. That it's now grown, that if at least uh, in modern times, uh, to probably uh, many millions of, of Ashkenazim t today. So at that point, it was a very small part of the Jewish population where, where the Ashkenazim we also see that that um, bottleneck, we call it the population bottleneck, um, starts to fix certain characteristics in the population, which some are negative, some are not. And, and that, can be, that can be very interesting to, to explore as well. What do you mean? So you know, there, is a, there is a certain burden of genetic uh, disease in the Ashkenazim, and the latest thinking is that that comes from that population bottleneck rather than more recent um, events happening. Or, uh, you know, people always say, well, you know, in the shtetl, everyone married their cousin. Well, it's partially true, but, of course, in historical times, in all communities that happened. Um, and that, that actually is not really the more, definitely not more so in Jewish populations over the last few hundred years. So, uh, so you're saying it's not, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating that we think we are a small community that intermarries, and therefore, we have these genetic diseases. You're saying, no, this goes back way back So there. the latest evidence seems to indicate that it's more that bottleneck that is the primary driver. There may be other secondary things, but that is a primary driver of, of, um, of, of, uh, of those well-known variants. What does it mean to have Ashkenazi DNA? I don't know if it means anything. <laughs> So I, I think your personal identity is really important. And people often like to have DNA evidence to support their view. It can be a dangerous thing to look for. And as someone who's interested in this as a scientist, I would say it shouldn't mean anything to you because your identity should be determined by the, your culture, by the people around you, by your set of beliefs. 
by your immediate ancestry rather than some historical freak of what DNA you have. And I think you just have to look at the history of South Africa in the 60s and 70s mm. and uh, of Nazi Germany in the 30s and the 40s where this belief that there's something special about your genetic makeup one way or the other can be very dangerous. So the politics of genetics is a topic we are going to return to in a later show. Let's talk about the Ashkenazi jury today. Are we, do we continue? I mean, are those genes just circulated continuously? Yes. I mean, obviously, since the start of the 20th century, there have been massive changes um, as a result of the large migrations to the New World. So you get this melting pot um, arising, particularly to North America, but to South America, South Africa, Australia as well. So the whole center of Ashkenazim moves, and particularly after the Holocaust, from Eastern Europe to North America. So you have a melting pot in many ways. One of the big melting pot is that you now have intermarriage within different Jewish groups. So we can still identify Western Ashkenazi and Eastern Ashkenazim oh. in the genes. Oh. But, of course, that merges over, t- over generations when you have the melting pot, perhaps not in South Africa, which is primarily an Eastern European origin, but in North America it becomes more complex, and then uh, there's intermarriage with Sephardi, uh, with Sephardim and Misrahi Jews as well. So it becomes a more complex environment. Again, how, how do you tell genetics differently from Western Ashkenazi? So because the the, the there's two things. One is that in, in the East there would have been a, a slightly greater admixture with Eastern Europeans, not a huge number. And actually one point I wanted to, to make, uh, I often hear people talking about people who come from, uh, Jews come from Eastern Europe. So there are things like uh, red hair and blue eyes. That's actually very, it predates, it's very old. It's probably at least 13th century and, and, and older that, Jew, that a significant number of Jews had red, red hair and blue eyes. So it's not a recent phenomenon about living in, in Eastern Europe. Um, but that's a long enough time period and there's enough interaction with neighboring populations that you start to see that because of the, the population divergence, of course there's interaction, but there's not a lot of interaction. So there's enough divergence that at least before the Second World War, you could distinguish between Western Ashkenazim and Eastern Ashkenazim. Uh, and we know that from a linguistic point of view that there's a difference in Yiddish between Western Western Yiddish and Eastern Yiddish or different dialects of Yiddish. Professor, you know, and this would have to be my last question to you, they talk about seven degrees of separation. Um, and in South African Jury, Jewish community, we could maybe talk about two degrees of separation, yes. if not one degree of separation. Could the same be said about our genetics? Yes, I think that uh, you, know, you asked me off air about ancestry, and I think that if you go back far enough, we we'll all have a common ancestor. So definitely, we are all uh, related in some way. We're all cousins in some way. It's just a question of the degree of closeness and whether we want to acknowledge that or not. So I, then I, in that case, I should greet you as my, my cousin and say yes. thank you very much, Professor. I'm pleased to have a cousin as educated and erudite as what you are. Thank you very much, Professor Scott Hazelhurst, for coming in, and I look forward to our next chat. Thank you. That was Professor Scott Hazelhurst, Professor of Bioinformatics in the School of Electrical Information Engineering and Senior Scientist at the Sydney Brenner Institute for Molecular Bioscience Advance.